good. Actually, why don't we just start? Okay, hello. I'm good. <laughs> Rabbit just asked me how I am. I'm good. Uh, just to give people a little backstory, we tried to, we intended to do this in real life, uh, but I didn't, I was, I'm a little bit too confident in myself. I have to apologize. I thought that recording a podcast in real life would be like, eh, just a piece of cake. What are, what's involved? And then when I started to set it up, I was like, oh God, like I need a mixer. Like, <laughs> yeah, but right, right. here we are. Um, so so where used I, to Zoom. <laughs> I know Zoom, it has been a lifesaver during the pandemic. Um, so introducing you, Robert. Um, where are you right now? Robert, you can call me Bob. You can call me Bobby. I I just go by Robert for Formally. my business. Right. I, I yeah. I have this is been. business too, sort of. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I'm looking forward to as my business is changing is to no longer. It's not about me anymore. So I feel like I can switch back over into using sort of my my nickname. Um, Cool. But back All when right. I used to have my studio in New York, it was Robert. But um, now it's Bobby. But, this uh, is the yeah. relax mode, <laughs> doing business in Thailand, Bobby mode. Exactly, it's a totally totally different vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, tell I'm me, in, like, I'm in Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai. This is your new studio. Yeah, I'm in my new space. Um, I've been here for about a month now. I haven't moved in yet, but it's a it's a shop house right in Old Town in Chiang Mai that um, is going to kind of become, I guess, for lack of a better word, like my new headquarters for the new company, nice. new brand, and all of the, the work that I'm going to be doing. So I can tell you more about, you know, what the space is going to be used for later. Yeah. But, um, tell tell yeah, us about so. your new company right now. What, what are you setting up um, right now? So I've been uh, in Thailand for about a year now, more or less living here for a year now. I still go back, go back to New York periodically for work and to, you know, make some money. <laughs> um, but uh, for the past 10 years, I've been working in, in New York um, as a furniture designer and maker, um, mostly making my, my own things, making things myself there. Um, had a you know, very small studio. And uh, since coming here about a year ago, um spent the first year just kind of doing a lot of research and uh you know developing relationships with the 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 future of the new company um is really about trying to connect the US and Thailand through craft and through design mm. um and so right before covid like literally a month before everything got locked down in New York I had done my first kind of a collaboration where I was inviting a friend from New York who's a designer and maker to come here for kind of like a, a two weeks of a residency type experience. Um, and that later became our first collection of um, small brass products. Um, and so those types of collaborations are kind of going to be like the backbone of the company moving forward. So mm -hmm. haven't been able to do that very much over the past two years because of COVID and yeah. traveling. Um, but, uh, you know, all of our momentum was lost right after that first trip because everything locked down, you know, for mm -hmm. about a year until I came back here on my own and have kind of started to continue that specific collaboration in, mm -hmm. in Ubon, Ratchatani. Um, 
And uh, so, yeah, over the past year, as, I, as I've been doing that, I've just kind of been been here researching and um, meeting more and more craftspeople who will probably be our collaborators in the future, where, you know, once more friends can start to come here to visit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the brand itself is really going to be about, you know, using craft and design as kind of its own language to kind of connect these pretty far away places and, and far away people, um, which is sort of a personal, it's mostly a personal adventure. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of like what something is it that I've though, needed really? to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I'm sure we can probably share a lot of, yeah. a lot of these kinds of, so what, what, what exactly is your, did you grow up in Thailand or? I, I grew up in Thailand until I was about eight years old and then I moved to Australia um, and I, yeah, I did high, like I did school and university. I went to art school in Sydney mm-hmm. and I probably like worked in Sydney for a year or so after graduating. And then I was just like, I need to go home. Like, I don't know, like uh, Thailand always felt more like home than right. Australia, just maybe because I just, identified culturally more with the way of living and the people here um so yeah i just like came back um tried i was curating some gallery spaces for a while and then like uh yeah just made made a blog back when people like did blogs (laughs) 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 wordpress and um yeah like i just kind of set a goal to like write on a very regular basis like one article a day and it just I guess back then like the internet was a smaller place than it is now and um, I just got mm-hmm. a lot of writing work through that like with magazines like um, Condé Nast Traveler, Vogue Australia and I just kind of fell into making clothes uh, but I had that background sure. of like going to art school to just get my just have that headspace of like how do I make stuff from my ideas and like communicating something through making stuff and yeah I've been making clothes for like seven years now and can't believe how how fast time flies really but yeah yeah, that's like my in a nutshell backstory but yeah like yeah what I was really like interested in when I saw your work was like I was like this guy does a similar version of what I do in like object making. Yeah, different. In, t- in terms of like, yeah, we both have like a vernacular de- design approach to how we make stuff in terms of like, yeah, we design stuff, but then we have to, we work with like artisans to produce right. our pieces. And these artisans have been doing this this style of making stuff for generations or in in -hmm. some cases like centuries um which is like what i found really exciting and then the more i like looked into your work and like read you are a brilliant writer also by the way but that's just a side note um (laughs) yeah the more i read of like what you've written about your work process the more i was like oh yeah we're like on a very similar wavelength in terms of like 
using our design process to kind of figure out who we are and um, exactly. yeah and like in both of our cases we we've grown up in two different cultures and trying to figure out where I, where totally home, home is yeah that's sort of like unlike the work that i was doing in new york what i'm doing here now very much starts with that question as opposed to the product mm. whereas like in new york i was when i first got into furniture making i had actually studied photography and i worked as a photographer for a few years and i started woodworking as a hobby and i was just obsessed with making and making and making which is not a particularly compelling story. It doesn't make the basis for a very good, you know, uh, business. <laughs> and uh, so I got kind of burnt out on that after a while. And when I came here to do this, the reason why I was doing it wasn't because I wanted to make things. Like the product mm. really is secondary. It was more about kind of like figuring out some, some personal identity things mm. and looking for a lifestyle and an excuse it allowed me to be connected to like both of my homes. Mm. I was much more connected to New York and America, you know, a year ago. And now I feel pretty connected to both places, but also an excuse to, to work with the, the people that, that you're yes. talking about as well as, as well as my friends back home. Like it's for me, it's really not one or the other. It's about kind of producing mm. the cl collaboration and trying to be that connective tissue in between those two places that really is the core of like what I'm trying to do right now. And um, yeah. the products that come out of it, I love them. I hope that the people who buy them respond to them as products alone. But for the most part, people who have been buying these new things are really people who have kind of been following along on the sort of the journey and are really interested in the story and the process and the craft and the history and the collaboration. And that gives me so much more like, satisfaction at the end mm. of the day that that's kind of the entry point mm. for the for the product as opposed to just sort of like oh that's a beautiful thing that I know mm. nothing about that I that yeah. I want um, I think also and, to just like interject here is that um I think what also it, it's a new space right now because of social media but what's also so compelling right. is transparency and like the um people who are investing in your work are able to like follow through like follow step by step with like where you're producing these pieces and the relationship the special relationships that you have with the makers totally. which is like I think I hate to use this word but there's like such an important sustainability aspect to this as well on a in a bigger picture kind of um perspective is that like this kind of transparency and this special relationship with the producers are uh, to me what's gonna make a better a healthier economy and a better way of consuming things as well which is quite special yeah, like it, it kind of has to be that has to be the future yeah i think I, I, already amongst the people who i would like call like my new customers who are very different from my old customers mm. if i'm being totally honest because i was it was a much, much more kind of a luxury product that I was making in, uh, in the U.S. before. Um, the people who are interested in these things now tend to be people who are kind of sick of buying stuff that they don't know where it came from. Mm. And also recognize the fact that we're constantly buying things and we're constantly throwing things away as well. And like, I think one of the ways to sort of 
protect yourself from that kind of like consumerism and then throwing away of those things that we buy is to buy things that, that do have like an inherent value mm -hmm. in the mm. in meaning behind them and that you kind of feel more connected to that piece. And so one of the ways that we do that with our work is by, yeah, by being much more transparent about like where these things are coming from and who makes them and even like, what are their names? Do you know mm, what I mean? Like yeah. that's always been really important to me, you know, Bampa'au, which is where we make the brass work is the main place that I've developed that super deep connection where we're almost like family now. Mm. And it was always really important for me from the beginning to be like, like name these people, you know, it's not like, name you know we can just always say like artisans and craftspeople too and like sometimes that almost makes it a little bit too anonymous mm. but in a place like Bampa'au they've literally been practicing this particular form of lost wax casting this is an example of one of the Shay, uh, the bells that we make mm. this is like the first small product I don't know if you can kind of see it's got this like coiled um for those who it. are just listening right now, not watching, um, um, Bobby just like picked up this kind of like hand-sized bell casting made in, made from brass with like a coil technique. That's like um, how it's constructed. How is that yeah, yeah, a they, very traditional technique? It's a technique that is they've been practicing in this village for like seven generations. Mm. Um, and it's probably the only place in the world where they do this specific technique, which is something that makes it really special. So it's lost wax casting, which is a, a broad term for basically the process of casting brass where, where the wax, uh, model melts out in the casting process and then it's replaced with brass. But, and so that's even how like jewelry gets made, mm. but at like a jewelry factory they're they're making that wax out of a mold and then they're like casting tons of them at you know a time whereas what what these people do is they're actually making these molds hand by hand one by one mm. out of uh cow dung and termite clay and they kind yeah. of sculpt the inner mold uh yeah the, the process is is amazing you know if you go and look on my instagram stories there's millions of them because i could just document it forever but they they make these molds by hand and then they make their own wax blend out of um, just regular like candle wax, like temple candles that they mix with a, a resin from a, a local tree that gives it the right consistency. And then they coil the wax around the molds, mm -hmm. cover that with more of that clay mixture, let it sit for about two weeks to harden. And then it's ready for the, the process of the wax casting. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of details in there that I'm leaving out make it kind of a unique thing in the world the only other place i've seen where they do it this way is in um in ghana of which mm. is so interesting i was you know obsessed with figuring this out you know as soon as i discovered it like why there are these few villages where they do a very very similar process which to me again just kind of like shows the way that like human kind of ingenuity does kind of like connect us in a lot of ways because um, yeah. this really is a kind of like an ancient style of casting and it produces really every piece is going to be different because it's done by hand. And um, this is another example of a, a new design for making this lamp. Um, on this one, you don't see the coils because they kind of turn the wax smooth after. 
And then this has one of our special patinas that we use, which uses rice husk um, and ammonia to produce this like blue texture. Um, Is it blue so. because that's that's the color that brass oxidizes that? Um, into? I mean. Brass can turn many different colors. So right. brass, copper, and, and bronze can all turn this kind of blue mm. or green, browns, blacks, and a whole lot of stuff in between. Um, and so, yeah, it's the ammonia that is actually doing most of the work to make that turn blue. But the, uh, the rice husk is like a vehicle to mm. kind of do that fuming process. You can't just like seep brass and ammonia. It's not going to turn blue. It has to kind of like evaporate and do all kinds of crazy chemical stuff to, to do that. So it was actually one of the guys at Bampa who taught me this method. Like I knew that you could use ammonia, but he was like, try mixing it with rice husk, put it in a bucket, and then tomorrow morning we'll see what it looks like. And it came out like this, and I was like blown away. We had to do a lot of tests to to get it to the point where it was coming out how I liked. Um, but that was just another example of like why I do this kind of work because it's like it's like constantly learning. Yeah. There's an idea that like we know how to do everything the best way in the West, you know, with mm. like modern manufacturing techniques and things like that. But people who have been like practicing, you know, the same craft for their whole life, but who have inherited that from their, their parents, which is mm. literally how people in this village learn. It's like when they're like eight years old, they start learning how to make this stuff. Um, there's just so much inherited knowledge that like yeah. is only in them. It's not written down anywhere. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? And, and also, that's why it was so important for me to keep doing it, you know, is to like yeah. make sure it continues. Yeah. I And also there are some minority groups, um, like, for example, like um, people who I work with to make indigo products sometimes and hemp products are Hmong people and they mm -hmm. their history is not written. It's, um, it's passed down through spoken mouth. So what like just it's a spoken history and they have they pass down history through textile like embroidery story yeah, cloths and things so, yeah so um yeah i think like what back to like this conversation about sustainability i think there's a lot to be said about um keeping preserving heritage and preserving this passed down knowledge and making sure that it doesn't stop here in like because it, I could I could draw parallels to making stuff with um, cooking, for example, like um, pass down recipes and, and knowledge of like how grandma makes something to make it absolutely delicious right. is something that um, comes from a long lineage of trial and error. And like it's something that we definitely should not throw away in for like industry like for progress or whatever you know it's kind of going backwards right. by throwing these things away sometimes people will ask me like oh just like my opinion like what's the best way to like make sure uh something like you know this particular technique in bampa outlet continues on to the next generation because it is true that like young people in the village really aren't interested in in doing mm -hmm. this work like there's probably like six or seven people in the the group that i work with and there's only one other guy who does this work outside of that 
and he's like 65 and he's just kind of doing his own thing. Mm. Um, and the youngest person I'd say is probably 45 who's mm. in this group. If they get really busy, you might see some younger people pop in to help. But for the most part, you know, it's kind of the classic story. Like people in Isan will kind of like leave and go to like the urban centers or go even to Bangkok, Chiang Mai, et cetera, to look for work. Mm. They're not that interested in like keeping the craft going. So that is a little bit scary. I think uh, that's where, think, um, like, yeah, I sorry to interject here, but like, I think that's where design comes in as like this kind exactly. of, it breathes life into these traditional practices that do get old and boring for young people in a sense where it just feels too familiar and it doesn't have a sense of freshness. So like using design to like, you know, bring new ideas to an object is like everything and can like make something, um, I don't want to use the word trendy because that's an awful word, but just make something yeah. inspiring again for young people. Yeah, or um, it's just something new. Like it's a new conversation. So like if you go back to that, um, the food analogy is like, it's not just about preserving the old thing as much as we want to hold on to that old knowledge. Like Thai food is a really good example of like, there's really no such thing as just like Thai food. Thai food is a hybrid of mm. like Chinese cooking, Indian cooking, Indian you know, all coming together with like the, probably the best ingredients in the world, mm. just like vis-a-vis -vis where Thailand is located. And a lot of people outside of Thailand don't really realize that, but I think a lot of Thai people don't even realize that either. They like, kind of like mm. see Thai-ness as a Thai thing, but yeah. Thailand is like the most kind of like hybridized place. Like, yeah, this is, this is my perspective. Maybe it's because I'm like, I am like genuinely mixed, but um, you know, everything from like language, culture, especially food, like really is this like, you know, thing that is just like constantly being kind of like created and mm. updated. Like even some of the most common Thai dishes, it's like, you know, came from, it was a Chinese dish that just got kind of like Thai-fied, yeah. you know, or something like that. And so I think when I'm doing these types of products and Bambao is, you can look at them and you can see how they came from Bambao. You can see the the elements, but they're very different from the, the pieces that, the traditional pieces that they make there. Mm. And so these things can, I think, can like coexist next to each other. Mm. It's something I struggle with a little bit because I don't want to become the sole client of this yeah. village and have them stop doing the traditional stuff that they were making for a lot of reasons. Like you want them to keep doing that traditional stuff so that mm. it is preserved. But at the same time, what if I disappear and they were like kind of relying on me to like constantly yeah. be ordering from them and stuff like that. So that's really important to like protect the community. Yeah. And so I'm kind of conscious about kind of growing our collaboration too quickly, mm. too soon. If I don't know that it's gonna, it's going to continue. Yeah. So that's something that I'm still figuring out as, mm. as we go is to like, make sure that you're really being like, you know, respectful because there, there's a lot of craft, Chiang Mai is kind of like a shell of what it used to be in terms of craft. Mm. You know, there's really not much good stuff here anymore, to be honest, because it, it was sort of a bubble over the last 30 years that grew with the tourist market and all mm. of the amazing traditional craft kind of got funneled into like some pretty basic stuff that was sold at the night bazaar. And then that's all kind of just like, you know, crashed and there's not that much good stuff that's, mm. that's left because of it. And so 
that that is a problem. It's one of the reasons why I go to Isan more than anywhere else because there is still so much like I would call like first generation craft there that really hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, that that's really hard to find that. in other places. Yeah, I, I would agree yeah. with that. I um, also visit Isan for textiles and yeah, like mainly Roy Ed and. Yeah, it is there there is like a because it's mainly farming out in the east, um, I think there is that um security that people I don't know, there is like a slowness, a slower pace in life and like there oh. is less of an urgent need to hustle. Um and I love that kind of pace of life of like just not having that pressure to like produce 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 and to do things on your own time on your own terms which is something very unique to yeah Yeah, that's what keeps me going back is like in like the last year i think i went to bamba like five or six times and it's like i would need that i'd need that like refresher just to like be there if i felt Mm. kind of like stagnant here in chiang mai like I knew if I went back there, there was going to be this like rich collaboration. And it's also just mm. the lifestyle, like, you know, cause I kind of live with them when I'm there, right. you know, living, eating, you know, it's a totally different pace of life. And, um, you know, it's something that like, I've kind of like personally, I need that yeah. in my life now. Um, I think but, that's also like a really like refreshing approach to, um, when looking at like the scalability of your new company is that keeping in mind that like um, you don't want to bombard your makers with too many orders because um, the economy goes up and down, demand goes up and down these things and trends come in and out. And like, yeah, I think to me success is like being able to establish like a really thriving network of makers and, to be able to continue making what you love over a long period of time rather than like making crazy big sales um, and like, totally. yeah, um, having a lot of work at one point and then, you know, suddenly a trend changes or the market crashes or like there's a pandemic and then suddenly, you right. know, you have no demand, um, which is what we're kind of figuring out now that we've gone. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's easier to have this mindset here than it was when I was in New York. Mm. And I really needed to leave the bubble of New York. I mean, as much as it'll always be home and I do go back often, you know, you can't escape the purely business kind of capitalistic Mm. mindset when you're working in that sort of space, because it's so expensive. Mm. You're constantly competing. And here I don't have to prioritize things like like that i can prioritize like being respectful and like learning and and growing yeah and and kind of trying to do things the right way and like that that is what kind of keeps me here more of the time now is that like i'm not compromising on like you know on things like that yeah i want to go to um your childhood um, what was great? What was growing up um, between two cultures like for you? Um, because I think that's an important kind of like foundation to like making things 
making arty things and communicating yeah. something. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I was not artistic or a creator at all when I was a kid, but um, I I think it is the reason why like, I'm kind of going in this direction now. Um, I actually was not connected to Thailand at all until I was about 10 years old. I had been to Thailand when, a couple of times when I was really young, but I don't even remember those trips. Mm-hmm. But my father, he moved to the U.S., lived there for 25 years, met my mother, um, and uh, when I was 10 years old, he moved back to Thailand. He moved to Chiang Mai. And so that was kind of like my first memory. I can't remember the day he was like, oh, I'm moving back to Thailand. For some reason, I can't remember anything before that. But starting from that first summer onwards, my brother and I started visiting um, my dad for every summer break. Mm. And so that's I kind of like see that year, sort of like kind of the year my life changed and sort of like, things became more confusing too, because I, I grew up in a pretty much hundred percent white town in, in Massachusetts, about an hour outside of Boston. And, um, I went to an all boys Catholic high school, you know, wow. and then I spent, yeah. And then I spent my summers here in Thailand, you know, from age 10 onwards. So you can imagine like it was this constant, just sort of whiplash yeah. culturally. And especially at that time, you know, we're talking like that was 25 years ago, like that first trip. When I look at like kind of sort of more like not even necessarily mixed kids, but just sort of like the international kids here in Thailand or people you might call like a third culture kid. If I look at my nieces here in Chiang Mai, for example, I think they're a little bit more comfortable with their internationalness and in-betweenness than I was ever. I was always like really confused about it because like, the two places were so much more disconnected 25 years ago. Mm, yeah. Whereas like now when I see my nieces talking with their friends at school, they might as well be in LA or something. Yeah. They just seem like and American Also, kids, also you know? the like the incredible fluency of language that this new oh generation God, yeah. has. Oh my God. Totally different. <laughs> <laughs> like for me, it's still something I struggle with. Like my tie is pretty good now, but um I didn't speak any Thai when I was young. It wasn't until I was like 18 and I started traveling on my own that my Thai really improved. And now that I'm working on my own with artisans more, it's like way, way, way better. But I do Mm -hmm. still reach a a kind of a wall culturally and, you know, with vocabulary where I I can't communicate anymore. Um, And so those types of things are, you know, what I've been working through my whole life. It was like in the U.S., how do I fit in here completely? in a completely white environment Mm. and then coming to Thailand, it's like, I'm sure you share this experience too. It's like, I go a lot of places where people don't think I'm Thai at all. Or it's just like, if you speak to to them in Thai and they're like, Oh my God, you speak Thai. Yeah. And then I tell them, and then they're like, Oh, your mom's Thai. I'm like, no, my dad's Thai. And they're like super confused. They're like, what do you, what do you mean? (laughs) It's like all kinds of, you know, things like that. And so I'm kind I've always been like a constant kind of like source of confusion when I'm here (laughs) in Thailand for people. Understand. And that confusion, you know, comes, you know, you kind of internalize that. So it wasn't something that I really used to think about very much. I think probably until as an adult. And um, I never really had the chance to kind of explore living in Thailand. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I went to college in New York and then just lived there from for the last 15 years. And I would come here every year to visit family, but, you know, for like these two week trips, mm-hmm. it was never enough. 
I'd always be depressed when I got back to the U.S. because, like, I felt like something was missing. You know, having spent all my summers here as a kid, you know, that's like a quarter of my year every year was here in Thailand, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't have enough of that. I felt very disconnected, and so me coming here to do this now, I think, is is really it is kind of like returning to like you know that space of when I was younger and being like, okay, yeah. kind of resolve a little bit of that. Um, yeah, that confusion and that like lack of connection, you know, mm, with like a, a more adult perspective, you know. Um, yeah, I think that definitely that's what, again, like as I said, it would is what drew me to your work. Um, my favorite was um, the piece that you called Mirazzo. Is that how you pronounce oh, it? Oh, Mirazzo. Mirazzo. Yeah, yeah. Because so for people listening, um, yeah, it's basically your re- reinterpretation of um, Thai street furniture. That's like, um, what's the material they use um, to? It's terrazzo. It's, it's like terrazzo. All, yeah. Right. It's like a Thai, like reinterpretation of a like European. Uh, like material um yeah unconsciously i think but you know the italians created terrazzo do you, you think unconsciously unco- because i think thai people are wonderful borrowers of exactly. things revolving around them and then they do definitely interpret them into their own way which is really awesome to totally. see i, I um, think those pieces are amazing like I, yeah. I see you see different types all the time on the street too and i'm, I'm constantly amazed by like the ingenuity of them yeah, I have this like story of when I was um, in school here in Thailand. I was probably about maybe seven years old, and at my school we had that furniture outside, and I used to like jump from from like bench to bench as kind of like stepping stones, and like I fell and just just like completely Ooh. like just bash my my front teeth into one of one of those like corners like of the furniture cement, cement basically <laughs> and i like lost a tooth and like so every time i see that furniture i just think about my tooth which is why i love <laughs> when i saw that you made it i was like awesome yeah so you, yeah you like tell us about the process and like how exp- maybe visually describe what these objects look like so that people listening can understand them a bit more. Yeah. So um, they are terrazzo, which is like basically you're taking the leftover stone from, you know, working with marble or, or whatever and recasting it in, usually in concrete. So it's like one of like probably like the original sustainable, you know, materials because you're basically using like the leftover stuff. Um, and uh, what I was saying before, that was kind of like a technique that was created in Italy, and they really do use it in amazing ways in Italy. And um, here in Thailand, it's become a really common, cheap, inexpensive way to make street, you know, furniture. Like you can buy those benches for like, you know, probably like a few hundred baht up to like, you know, a two thousand baht for like a whole dining set, you know. Mm. Um, and they tend to be kind of these like little curved benches with these sort of like blocky feet or round chest tables. There's, there's so many different designs. Um, and my kind of update on that was to 
you know, one of the main products or pretty much the main product that I made in New York was a collection of mirrors that used a lot of different colors of mirror. And you get like a 30% waste factor with mirror because it gets scratched and broken. So I had all this leftover mirror. And I thought like, why don't I try casting the glass with the stone and see what happens? And it produced a really interesting effect because when you polish all that together, the mirror stops being like, reflective it's no longer you can no longer see yourself in it but it has this kind of like luminous effect with color and it was a really interesting interplay with the stone um mm. but i was pretty faithful to some of the original forms of the, yeah of the that's i think i think that's yeah. why they are special to me because it's like a a remix of a very important memory that i think a lot of like people who grew up or people who live here in Thailand like have that there everyone has like a special memory like with sitting yeah, on totally. one of these pieces of furniture but also like if you don't have a, a personal co connection to these forms like they are beautiful in themselves as well yeah, it was really interesting to see the different reactions in New York or not even just in New York just because like once once imagery starts circulating on the internet, design blogs, whatever, you know, it, it was in like, you know, magazines in Europe and stuff like that. Um, what people were drawn to there was very different from like mm. the reaction amongst Thai people who saw it because they had a very specific relationship with yeah. um, that, that furniture, which they call here stone horse. I I'm trying to think of like how that translated, translates into Thai. It's like the stone horse table or something like that. Um, but um, yeah. yeah, people here would like kind of say like, oh yeah, you know, it was so interesting to see you create this sort of like new interpretation of this piece is so taken for granted in mm -hmm. Thailand. It's just kind of part of the daily experience yeah. here that all this stuff sort of blends into the background. It's part of like that mm -hmm. idea of the everyday here, you know. Right. Um, um, and so I think people were kind of surprised to see me like be so enchanted by these pieces that I would want to kind of like make my own version of it. And so that, that was, that was really fun. And mm. again, to me, that goes back to like this idea of like design being, uh, its own language to connect because that kind of creates a conversation that like I might not have mm. otherwise. And, you know, like. I was saying before, sometimes language is a barrier for me here with certain people where like we can kind of like no longer continue our conversations and in a place like Bomb Power or something like that, like the design instead is the language or the craft is the language. So it's mm. like a, it's just a different way to communicate yeah. and to get closer to people that, you know, to me is sort of the reason for doing it. It's like, mm. you know, it, it kind of takes the place of, of, of spoken language or shared cultural norms don't really matter as much when you share like process and the making of things with hands mm. um, and stuff like that. So yeah, Maraxa yeah. was like the first collection prior to this new company where I was just kind of exploring these concepts on my own of like, how might I kind of hybridize tie things with my own practice in New York. But specifically I was drawn to the idea that like, Thai people had already hybridized what was kind of originally like yeah. an Italian technique into their own thing and made it beautiful. So it's like just kind of like a 
the trajectory one, that you're just kind of inserting yourself into. Exactly. That's one thing that I really enjoy about designing clothes is that like it's like fun, like sometimes designs that become very successful are that beautiful like cross-pollination of like something familiar and something unfamiliar like uh, brings newness to an object um, yeah. that becomes very interesting to different people and have has different meanings for different people um so what are you currently working on uh with your new company at the moment or upcoming yeah, so, projects yeah this um so I'm constantly developing some new small products because with COVID and everything that that's done to like logistics and shipping, furniture has had to take a, a back seat because it's so expensive to ship overseas so now. So that's why we started with small products and a lot of marble things. Um, it's kind of like the other main collection that we've done so far, but beginning to do more lighting, um, and I, over the last year, even though I was a furniture designer, was never really inspired to like make furniture. I just like couldn't get myself into the headspace. And I realized that the way that I used to work, which was just to be like, oh, let me design some, something that just kind of exists in like, you know, in space that I think people might want to buy. Like, I can't think that way anymore. It's I almost like... Need- Sorry, just to just to interrupt a, a second. It's almost yeah. like if you approach designing something in that way, you are like confronted with an infinite amount of options. It and how do you sure. <laughs> how do you pick anything like if it doesn't have meaning for yourself, you know, exactly. like it can be very drowning. Like and I, and I used to kind of like in New York cuz I was constantly worried about money and sales and constantly thinking about designing towards the client. Like I almost started with the client in mind, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but like the, the new types of clients, it's like I, maybe I am kind of designing with them in mind a little bit just from a price point perspective, but um, I'm less interested in that now. Mm-hmm. And I care more about how we interact with objects. And the easiest way for me to think about that is to just do it for myself. And so that's why I have this new building, which is going to be when this space is finished, that'll kind of be the launch of the new company, um, which uh, is going to be called Krimban, um, which is a word, as you know, in Thai, that means neighbors. Um, but it's, I've always loved that word because of the, the two words in Thai that make it up, Pren and Ban. You know, so friends, friends and home. Yeah, mm. and, and Ban means so many different things. It means house, it means home, okay. it means village. Mm. Um, you know, Ban Pa'au is just literally means Pa'au, village. Mm. And um, when I thought about, like, what is the the kind of concept that I'm trying to create here, it's like, it's it's about, you know, trying to suspend the idea of geography to kind of create this, like, neighborhood of people, you know, in the U.S., here, it doesn't have to be the U.S., but people who are kind of like relating through design and through craft and through the objects that we're making. Um, and that idea of like friends and home, you know, like those are the types of objects that we want to create that are like really make us feel. Yeah. Make us, you know, when I, when I think of like what I want home to be, and I'm trying to like figure that out, it is 
I want to like surround myself with these objects that kind of make me feel connected to, to people. And, that, and that's what I want our, our customers to feel. But more, even more broadly than that, um, you know, like this space, I can kind of like envision it as being sort of a multi-use space. It will have a gallery in this room that I'm in right now, eventually when it's, when it's renovated. But my studio and workshop will be downstairs on the ground floor. And so that space will be used for, you know, making prototypes. When my friends come here to do residencies, we'll have a place to like tinker. Um, this room will be kind of like a little bit of a showroom gallery. You know, maybe there'll be some kind of special exhibitions here. And then I'll be living upstairs um, on the third floor right now. I'm just trying to get like one bedroom comfortable enough that I can move in so I can leave my old house and uh, live there while I'm renovating the rest of the building. So it's, it's five floors. The fourth and the fifth floor will have another bedroom, bathroom, living area, and then the rooftop is kind of like half covered and the kitchen and the kind of like outdoor rooftop terrace area will be up there. Um, so that'll be a space when people visit, you know, where they can, you know, do the residency here. Mm. I can also host people. But it's actually just an excuse to have a place to design all new furniture, lighting, yes. and in a whole environment. So I kind of envision when this space is done as being sort of like, hey, here's the here's the visual vision of what I want to do. And then, you know, almost every piece of furniture or, or product in here will have the kind of story behind it where you can be like, okay, like here are the people that we worked with in Thailand to make this or here's who designed it. You know, a lot of the pieces here will be collaborations between, you know, friends from New York or designers here in Thailand. Um, and all these pieces will be kind of put in conversation with one another. And so I'm finally going to start designing more stuff myself after That's spending same. a year not really designing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's been really easy because I'm like, well, I need a bed. I need nightstands. I need this. <laughs> yeah. And so I just can make what I want to make with the materials that I want to make, working with the people who I've been you know meeting over the last year and um, not think about is someone going to want to buy it? You know, we'll see if people like it, then we'll make more of it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just going to be a space that has like a lot of energy and a lot of story in it. And I'm really excited to have like, you know, some, somewhere where I can like welcome people and kind of clearly communicate what it is that we've been talking about for the last yeah. hour Yeah. through the space and through the pieces and, and not even so much like with, with words. So that's it's a exciting. huge project. I have no idea yeah. when it's going to be done, <laughs> but, um, you know, well, you have time. I'll get there. That's the beauty. Yeah, exactly. Of I'm yeah. not, I'm not rushed at all, especially here in Chiang Mai, you know, life is like not expensive. I have a great landlord, you know, um, super chill. I love the street that I'm on. It's quiet. It's a really good location. Um, nice. I'm really, I'm really happy with yeah. this, with this new space. That's, so you're living the um, dream. Um, so for folks who want to check out, um, your work, your new company, is there an, uh, an internet space that they can do that? Yeah. I mean, my Instagram is still the best space because, you know, the new company eventually will be its own, you know, Instagram website, all that stuff just is not, just not ready yet. So, um, you know, so I what's your really, space? You know, uh, 
So my Instagram is Sukrashan, which is S-U-K-R-A-C-H-A-N-D. That's just my last name. Excuse me. Um, and also my website, sukrashan.com. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, keep an eye out. I'd say within the next, you know, three to six months, probably that, that standalone concept of Pernban will finally come into being. And then yes. from there on out, it's just going to be that. Like I was saying before in the beginning, like I look forward to separating my own, my own name from my business yes. and kind of letting, letting the new... It become a new entity, its own yeah. thing. Um, sounds, right. sounds really awesome. I'm excited for your new space and... Like yeah. I, hopefully I'll, we can work on something together in the future. Yeah, that would be sick. <laughs> um, well, yeah, thanks so much for like sharing your piece of the world with us, and yeah, look yeah, forward to seeing what you make. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Yeah.